you uh, would turn to Revelation, the second chapter. Since uh, we just got back, uh, Allison and I just got back from visiting the sites of the seven churches of Revelation, which are all in ruins now. And we providentially are at the very end of the book of Revelation, and we have gone through in the last chapter the final uh, vision and the uh, the prophecies that are given there, and the rest of the chapter is uh, uh, the end and a summation, basically, uh, left. I thought as part of that summation that we could take some time and go back to the beginning and get an anchor, since it's been so long, uh, get an anchor is into uh, what, what happened at the beginning of Revelation because it is a letter, these, these letters, uh, it's a letter to the, to the church as a whole, uh, the book of Revelation, a message to the church. Uh, and at the beginning, it's in the form of seven letters to seven different churches. But again, those aren't just to those particular churches 2,000 years ago. They are to the church uh, as a whole to us today. And it ties right in uh, with the end of the book of Revelation as well. And as I say providentially, we just got back from uh, Turkey and visiting those places. And so now I can go back and, and look at those churches and uh, hopefully bring some uh, new insights that we, we learned when we were over there. Um, so let's look at the second church mentioned in the in the letters. Uh, the, the church last week we looked at the, uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, today let's look at the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, and that's on your handout. You can see where we're talking about. Uh, it says Asia, which is actually uh, which is Asia Minor. Uh, it says Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, the country of Turkey today was called Asia Minor and we have the province of Asia uh, to the left of that Uh, that's the Roman province of Asia Uh, because you see the other provinces of Bithynia, Pontus, uh, Cilicia, uh, etc. So the churches were in the Roman province of Asia some of them were in the old Hittite kingdom by the way uh, some of them were in the Babylonian uh, uh, kingdom as well. And, of course, there's a crossover there. Okay, Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is the Lord Jesus telling John to write this down. So John is to be a stenographer here. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now this letter to the church at Smyrna, this is not going to be the same sermon that I gave before, uh, which was um, November 26th of 2006. So I'm sure you all remember it very well. Some of you weren't born then, I'm sure, actually. Um, but this letter to the Church of Smyrna is somewhat unique. Unlike most of the other letters to the various churches, there is no um, accusation brought against the Church of Smyrna. Uh, Christ 
If you remember, told the church at Ephesus, you fell from your first love. Uh, you're, going, you're going back. Uh, churches of uh, Pergamos and Thyatira, as we'll see, they tolerated false doctrines. The Nicolaitans, you remember uh, Jezebel who taught that. Uh, Sardis uh, was spiritually asleep. Uh, Laodicea was uh, lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Um, so only Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia uh, was not condemned by the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they were perfect. What it does mean is they didn't have uh, these gross evils in their midst, uh, whether uh, false doctrine or whether just uh, um, the, the excesses of paganism. Um, they'd been trying to do their duty. They largely did it well. And uh, the Lord shows tenderness and mercy in passing over the sins that, uh, uh, that they, they had. Now, you saw from your handout here that uh, where Smyrna is, it's number two there, uh, the church at Smyrna. Um, it's uh, the very prominent, very important city. It, was on the Aegean, it is on the Aegean Sea. Uh, it is now called uh, the, the city of Izmir, Turkey. Izmir is the third largest city in uh, Turkey uh, behind uh, uh, Istanbul and uh, the capital of uh, Ankara. Um, in the Roman period, Smyrna vied with Ephesus and Pergamos for the title of first city of Asia. There's a lot of competition there. Uh, they all wanted to build their monuments to the, to the Roman emperor to become the first city of Asia, uh, Asia Minor. Uh, Christian church existed there from a very early time. Uh, of course, having its origin in the... They had a large uh, Jewish colony uh, in, uh, in Smyrna. Uh, it was uh, located in a very central and easily defensible point on the Aegean Sea. It was on an essential trade route. Uh, throughout the period of antiquity, it was uh, a leading city. Uh, they, had, uh, they had this beautiful bay on the Aegean uh, for uh, ships. Um, Homer, uh, the, the Greek poet Homer, was a resident of, uh, of Smyrna, by the way. Um, it was also known for the Temple of Sibylle. And on the second handout, we have a picture of, from the Vatican Museum of a statue of Sibylle, which, interestingly enough, I put it next to a statue of Artemis or Diana. Uh, and uh, it's, it's virtually the same representation there. And uh, we'll talk about why in a moment. Smyrna was known for this temple of Sibylle, just like, if you remember, uh, Ephesus was known for the great temple of Diana, or Artemis in Greek. Uh, Sibylle uh, was uh, Smyrna's great uh, uh, goddess. Uh, and the Greeks knew her as Meter Theon. Uh, which meant mother of the gods. She was the earth mother goddess. Of course, so was Artemis, um, Diana. Now, uh, in the Aeneid, Virgil called her the mother of the gods. Uh, Roman devotion to Sibylle, uh, Roman devotion to Sibylle, also Greek, ran very deep. Uh, at the time of the Apostle John and the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, her worship has a lot of parallels with the modern worship of the Virgin Mary, uh, who is called the Mother of God, 
who is called the co-redemptrix. That is, some believe Mary with Jesus is the co-redemptor that has the power of redemption or salvation. So similarly, Sibylle was worshipped as uh, she had uh, various titles. One is the Savior who hears our prayers. And another was the Mother of the Gods. Another is the Accessible One. You know, we, we have a, a access to her. Uh, Ephesus actually was devoted to Sibylle as well as early as the 10th century BC, BC. And Ephesus is named for the Ephesia, the Ephesia, which was the celebration uh, in Ephesus in honor of Sibylle. So they took the name Ephesus from the, the term Ephesia. Um, now, uh, she had, Sibylle had female priestesses. She didn't have male priests, only females. Um, and they, had, they led the people in these very uh, repulsive and disgusting ceremonies with wild music, drinking, and all sorts of sex stuff going on. Um, now, Sibylle was associated with the mystery religion of Babylon, uh, which is where all this stuff started, uh, concerning her son Attis. Uh, in mythology, she dressed her son like a girl, uh, but he didn't care for that too much, so he ran off with a girl, and Sibylle became enraged with jealousy because she had a sinful thing with her son. So uh, Attis mutilated himself and died. He committed suicide in a very bad way. And according to this legend, Sibylle resurrected him. Uh, so you, you see the, the twisting of what the, the Bible teaches, even though this is long before Christ. Christ was, uh, of course, uh, uh, pre- uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. But um, So Sibylle resurrected uh, her son Attis, which gave her the, the, this power, this godly power, obviously, to re- be able to resurrect someone. Uh, Sibylle's most uh, ecstatic followers uh, in, in, of the males who ritually mutilated themselves to imitate Attis, uh, after which they were given women's clothing and assumed female identities. Wow! Uh, doesn't this sound? Yeah. I mean, doesn't this sound like something real familiar today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, this is going on today, and more and more. Uh, you may remember me telling you. I think I mentioned this not too long ago. Her priestesses had this unusual diet. They ate figs washed down with um, the urine of, of pregnant ma- horse mares. Mares. Um, so, but, but the point, you know, actually, the, the figs have a lot of estrogen in them, strangely enough, so I don't know if they knew that. But uh, homosexuality, deliberate confusion of, of, uh, of sexuality comes right out of paganism, which is demon worship. Uh, and the more society allows that, the more pagan and corrupt that society becomes. So, Sibylle lives on even today. Uh, in fact, I was doing some research on this sermon the other day, and I, I googled Sibylle, and I was looking at various sites, and there's actually a site of Sibylle worshippers. 
and they, they have a whole thing about worshiping Sibylle, and uh, they, they say that uh, uh, the Sibylle lifestyle uh, is to have a Sibylian marriage where the woman is in charge, and uh, uh, they, they, you know, the man is nothing, and the man is, you know, is to take his orders from the woman, and uh, I won't gross you out, but there's a lot of more stuff on that site that was pretty, uh, uh, pretty weird, pretty weird. Uh, but it, it all involved with women having dominance over over the man. And of course, you go back to Genesis. What was the the curse uh, that the, that the woman would uh, have desire over the man? And what that really means is women would desire to rule men. And that's curse. That that's part of the curse that women have because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You know, man has to work by the sweat of his brow to get food. Before it was just everywhere now. But now he has to work by the sweat of his brow to get food. And women have a curse, of course, of pain and childbearing. Uh, And they have a curse that they want to run the household. They want to be in charge. Uh, And uh, so that's uh, Sibelian worship uh, just picks up on that. Uh, there's a statue of, of Sibylle in one of the principal traffic circles in Madrid, Spain. Why? <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder why. Uh, also in doing research, I, I went to uh, the book that I've mentioned so many times, uh, The Two Babylons by Hislop. And some very interesting things to say, and I'll read you a few selections of it. There's a lot here, and I had to put a lot of it aside and not spend a whole lot of time on this, but I didn't want to you know, uh, uh, go on and on with it, but I did want to read you some, and then I suggest you uh, get that book. I know some of you have that. Uh, he's talking about Semiramis, who was, goes, it goes back to ancient Babylon, to the Tower of Babel and, and all that. Uh, Semiramis, and if you remember Nimrod, the king of Babylon, Semiramis was his wife, uh, and this is where it all started. Uh, he's a Semiramis coincident with the Aphrodite of Greece and the Venus of Rome was in point of fact the historical origin of all these goddesses. Uh, Aphrodite or Venus was identical with Astarte. Uh, uh, Astarte being interpreted as none other than the the woman that made towers or compassing walls. Um, And he he gives you uh, uh, some ancient writings on that, that Astarte means the woman that made towers or encompassing walls. If you go back to the history of Nimrod and Senoramis and the ancient Babel, uh, this was the first walled city, Babylon, and Nimrod and Semiramis made the walls around the city, so it it goes back to that. Uh, The mother, in point of fact, became the favorite object of worship uh, in, in uh, in the Babylonian period. Um, and he gives a lot of uh, um, substantiation for that. Um, to justify this worship, the mother was raised to divinity as well as her son. Of course, being resurrecting your son raises you, you know, the ability to, to raise somebody from the dead raises you uh, to divine status. He says, the Roman church maintains it was not so much the seed of the woman as the woman herself that was to bruise the head of the serpent. In defiance of all grammar, she renders the divine denunciation against the serpent thusly, quote, she shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise her heel. Uh, now, I don't, he doesn't have a reference there, so I don't know where that comes from, but given the fact that he has references for everything else, I think it's just a matter of, of uh, research. 
The same was held by the ancient Babylonians and symbolically represented in their temples. In the uppermost story of the Tower of Babel, or Temple of Belus, Diodorus Siculus tells us there stood three images of the great divinities of Babylon. One of these was a woman grasping a serpent's head. Among the Greeks, the same thing was symbolized for Diana, whose real character was originally the same as that of the great Babylonian goddess, was represented as bearing in one of her hands a serpent deprived of its head. As the time wore away and the facts of Semiramis's history became obscured, her son's birth, Attis, was boldly declared to be miraculous, and therefore she was called Alma Mater, or Meter Theon, uh, the Virgin Mother. That the birth of the great deliverer was to be miraculous was widely known long before the Christian era. For centuries, some say for thousands of years before that event, the Buddhist priests had a tradition that a virgin was to bring forth a child to bless the world. That this tradition came from no popish or Christian source is evident from the surprise felt and expressed by the Jesuit missionaries when they first encountered Tibet and China and not only found a mother and a child worshipped, as at home, at their home, but that mother worshipped under a character exactly corresponding with that of their own Madonna, the Virgin Mother of God, and that too in regions where they could not find the least trace of either the name or history of our Lord Jesus Christ having ever been known. The primeval promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head naturally suggested the idea of a miraculous birth. The Babylonian queen, Semiramis, seems to have been the first to whom that honor was given. The highest titles were accordingly bestowed upon her. She was called the Queen of Heaven. In Egypt, she was titled Athor, or the Habitation of God. Uh, One of her temples in Egypt, uh, there's an inscription that says, I am all that has been, or that is, or that shall be. In Greece, she had the name of Hestia, among the Romans, Vesta, which if you've heard of the Vestal Virgins, they worshipped, or Vesta, they kept the fire of Vesta going. That was their they had two major jobs. Keep the fire of Vesta going, which, is a, which was a fire uh, that was never to go out because it symbolized the eternity of the Roman Empire. And that's what they did in the, in the temple uh, of the Vestal Virgins, Temple of Vesta. Uh, their other job... <laughs> was to keep track of wills. <laughs> Don't ask me, but that's, that's, those are their two jobs. Um, I'm sure it had some spiritual meaning there. Um, but uh, uh, in Greece, she had the name of Hesta, and among uh, Semiramis and the, her various names. Amongst the Romans, Vesta, which is just a modification of the same name, really means the dwelling place. The dwelling place. Uh, the, the, the fire was the dwelling place of the of the Roman Empire, and uh, spiritually speaking, symbolically speaking, under the name of the Mother of Gods, the Goddess Queen of Babylon, Semiramis became an object of almost universal worship. The Mother of the Gods, says Clericus, quote, was worshipped by the Persians, the Syrians, and all the kings of Europe and Asia with the most profound religious veneration. Tacitus, the famous historian, gives evidence that the Babylonian goddess was worshipped in the heart of Germany. And Caesar, when he invaded Britain, found that the priests of this same goddess, known by the name of Druids, had been there before him. 
Herodotus, from personal knowledge, testifies that in Egypt this queen of heaven was, quote, the greatest and most worshipped of all the divinities. Wherever her worship was introduced, it is amazing what fascinating power it exerted. Truly the nations might be said to be made drunk with the wine of her fornications. So deeply, in particular, did the Jews in the days of Jeremiah drink of her wine cup. So bewitched were they with her idolatrous worship that even after Jerusalem had been burned and the land desolated for this very thing, they could not be prevailed on to give it up. While dwelling in Egypt as forlorn exiles, instead of being witnesses for God against the heathenism around them, they were as much devoted to this form of idolatry as the Egyptians themselves. Jeremiah was sent of God to denounce wrath against them if they continued to worship the Queen of Heaven, but his warnings were in vain. Jeremiah 44, beginning in verse 15. Then saith the prophet, All the men which knew that their wives had burnt incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt, in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out our drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil." Thus did the Jews, God's own particular people, peculiar people, emulate the Egyptians in their devotion to the Queen of Heaven. The worship of the goddess mother with the child in her arms continued to be observed in Egypt till Christianity entered. If the gospel had come in power among the mass of the people, the worship of this goddess queen would have been overthrown. With the generality, it came only in name. Instead, therefore, of the Babylonian goddess being cast out, in too many cases, her name only was changed. She was called the Virgin Mary, and with her child was worshipped with the same idolatrous feeling by professing Christians as formerly by open and avowed pagans. In A.D. 325, the Nicene Council had the representatives of the so-called Christianity of Europe, excuse me, of Egypt, the Melkites, held that there were three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. Uh, just finishing up here, the divinity of Christ is made to stand or fall with the divinity of his mother, according to this. This is just the exact reproduction of the doctrine of ancient Babylon in regard to the great goddess mother. The Madonna of Rome is just the Madonna of Babylon. The queen of heaven in the one system is the same as the queen of heaven in the other. The goddess worshipped in Babylon and Egypt as the tabernacle or habitation of God is identical with her who, under the name of Mary, is called by Rome the house consecrated to God, the awful dwelling place, these are terms they use, the mansion of God, the tabernacle of the Holy Ghost, the temple of the Trinity. So it all is very ancient stuff, and it all goes back to... It's, it's fascinating to see why, what the origins of our, of our worship are, and of some people's worship. Um, and this is what the church in Smyrna had to deal with. As we saw last week, the church in Ephesus had to deal with the cult of Diana, the church in Smyrna, the cult of Sibylle, um, and uh, heretics, including Judaizers. Uh, 
because he says here, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So Christ talks about that, the synagogue of Satan. Uh, he says he's the first and the last, of course, referring to Christ's divinity, the beginning and the end of all things. Uh, he was dead, referring to his humanity. He died on the cross uh, for the sins of his people. He's alive because he was resurrected. And he lives in both God and man in one person forever. He's the priest, the mediator between God and man, makes intercession for us. His office of prophet is the living word of God. And he, that also refers to his office of king. All of this is comprehended in that one statement. He says, you're poor, but you're rich. That sounds like nonsense to us, right? Most people. But it's only those to give an ears to hear that we can understand what the Lord means. Now, if you look at First uh, Corinthians chapter, Second uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter six, please. Second Corinthians chapter six. Keeping in mind, what does it mean? You are poor, but you are rich. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry might not be blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God and much patience in affliction and necessities and distresses in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers, and yet true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. See, if we truly believe this, would temper our desire for the riches of this world, because riches are not measured by God in terms of money or fame or power, but rather spiritual riches, riches which he gives. And uh, Christ says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews to the Smyrna church and not but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, he doesn't mean Jews ethnically, uh, Israelites. Uh, he teaches us in Romans 2.28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, in other words, not just born ethnically as a Jew, but is one, uh, uh, for he's not one that's born outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men of God. I mean, we're all Jews spiritually, is what, what he means, because we take... You know, we, we have the uh, faith of, of Christ. We, have the, we are part of the church. And the, the, in the New Testament, the church in Old Testament times was called the church in the wilderness. The Israelites in, in wandering the wilderness was, were the church of Christ, just as we are today. 
uh, so we are uh, inwardly, uh, spiritually Jews. Uh, True Jews who believe the promises of the Old Testament recognize Christ as Messiah and follow him. Uh, But those who say they're Jews, those who say they believe in Christ as the Messiah prophesied in the Jewish scriptures, but are not, they hold the works righteousness doctrines, uh, Judaizers or Arminians, uh, etc. They blaspheme the name of God. Uh, Our Lord calls this blasphemy, the strongest condemning word there is. The definition of blasphemy is speaking evil of God. And today we have those who say they're true Jews, they say they're Christians, yet spew forth all sorts of teachings contrary to the Bible. And the Lord says they are blasphemers. Um, what this verse probably is referring to uh, in a cultural and a time context is the heresy of the Judaizers, uh, which, you know, remember these were the converted Jews who said, yeah, we're Christians, but we also had to follow the dietary rules and get circumcised and, and do all the ceremonial stuff. Um, but the Judaizers were not all that the Smyrnians will have to contend with. Uh, actually, one of the greatest opponents of the gospel in the history of the church came into the midst of the Smyrnian church sometime later than this letter, and that was the bishop Arius, Arianism. And he seduced some to his deadly poison, uh, Arianism. Uh, Arianism says it almost took over the whole church. If it weren't for Athanasius, uh, it probably would have. Uh, but the Lord raised up Athanasius. Uh, Arianism says essentially that Christ is not God, only the Father is God. Uh, and the Church of Smyrna was under fierce attack by Satan for many years. By the way, I don't know if you know what happened to Arius. But he, he won, basically. The Church said, this is, uh, we vote for him. We vote for his doctrine, that only, only the Father is God. Christ is just not quite God. Uh, and uh, he was uh, brought in uh, on a great assembly and a great parade uh, to to make him basically the head of you know the the, the, the pope before there was a pope if you will and uh, during this parade and he was being lavished with honors he had some intestinal problems you know ate something bad got sick so he had to stop and go into the latrine. And so they're waiting in this parade for him to come out of the latrine. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. He doesn't come out. So they finally go in, find out what the problem is. Well, he had ruptured himself and fell headfirst into the latrine. And that's how they found him. Dead. With his head in the latrine. And they saw this And they regarded it as a sign from God that his theology was evil. And so Arianism was lost for many, many years. Today, a good example of Arianism is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. Jesus is not God. Okay, well, let's quickly uh, finish up here. Verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear with the Spirit. Saith unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Thus, obviously, he's warning that they're going to suffer for their faith, many kinds of sufferings very soon, because he says, behold, it is at the door. 
uh, soldier of the Roman Empire threw him into prison. Uh, Christ says uh, the devil is responsible for it because the soldiers acted out the devil's orders, whether they knew it or not. Uh, they were doing uh, the, the devil's bidding. Uh, Satan controls the actions of wicked men. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not just the people, the evil people that are fighting against us is what's behind them, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the deeds of evil men are Satan's deeds. They're slaves of Satan. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, you're of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. Unbelievers are described in 2 Timothy 2.26 as being caught in the snare of the devil. And it says they are taken captive by him at his will. So, But he also says great comfort and promise. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Do not fear. Do not fear. The Lord commands us not to fear, as he commands in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we have no strength in ourselves not to fear. But the Lord promises, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. We're to be faithful unto, even unto intense persecution, and he will deliver us from fear. And there's remarkable cases of that, where the Lord gives strength in the most, in, in, in situations where you say, well, I would just be, I don't know, I'd have a heart attack. I just, you know, I couldn't stand it. Yet the Lord gives a strength to people, to, to his people. It's, uh, it's miraculous. But why does the Lord permit persecution at all? Oh, okay. Why does the Lord permit persecution at all? That you may be tried, it says. You may be tested, tried. There's another word for tested. The Lord wants to test you. Uh, that your faith will be tested. Satan always wants to test your faith. Uh, like in the book of Job. Um, but we must take heart uh, that we remain faithful to him until death and we're rewarded, as it says here, with a crown of life. Uh, Jesus said to his followers and talking to us too, they'll put you out of the synagogues, they'll put you out of the church. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And these things will they do to you because they have not known the Father, nor me. He says here in the letter to Smyrna, their tribulation will last ten days. Uh, now, it's probably a literary term um, uh, called, called a, a synecdoche. Uh, it's a figure of speech. It's kind of a metaphor where part of something is used for the whole. It's like saying, uh, you know, somebody says, well, where do, where do these people live? Your, your, where does your friend live? Oh, ten minutes from me. Oh, really? It's not nine minutes, not 12 minutes, 10 minutes? Well, no, I mean literally 10 minutes. It's, they're pretty close. Well, it's a synecdoche. We do that all the time. Uh, and, uh, well, this is probably that because we know historically uh, it wasn't 10 days that they suffered, uh, but it was a relatively short time, apparently. Um, their duty was twofold, as is our duty, to be faithful to God no matter what happens, 
and to continue being faithful to him unto death. That's the first one. And to comfort ourselves with his promises, which builds strength. They get a crown of life. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So the believers in Smyrna are exhorted to have the same attitude, and that they would learn by Christ's example not to fear death. Without the death of the body, we can't have the gift of eternal life, can we? You know, they say everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Well, you got to die to get into heaven. Um, as it says in John 12, as the Lord says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, nothing's going to happen. It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So the conclusion is the same as it was in the message to the Ephesian church here in this letter. Except the context is different. The Ephesians were armed against inward spiritual laziness, sluggishness. The Smyrnans are armed against outward force. And the rest of the verse is different than the one given to the Ephesians. The promise that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And now we know what the second death is. The Lord describes it in Revelation 21.8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So he tells us the second. Second death is, is after your physical body dies, then your soul is thrown into the lake of fire if you're not of Christ. That's the second death. And it says that his people won't have part in the second death. A promise there. Uh, a promise. There's a second death after we're laid in the grave. The world knows nothing about the second death, of course, and they don't want to believe it when they're told about it. Yet their unbelief doesn't make it less real. Uh, the second death is the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And uh, Christ says, don't be afraid to lose your lives, for that is nothing. You suffer for a short time physically, and then you're in paradise. Absent from the body, Paul said, present with the Lord. Like that. I want to finish here with, uh, since we're talking about Smyrna, we'll talk a moment about Polycarp. Polycarp was the pastor at the Smyrna church, and we had the opportunity of seeing... Uh, from uh, a little bit of a distance, uh, the site of his martyrdom in, uh, when we were in Smyrna and Ismael. Um, it's now uh, gone. I mean, it's, it's, there's a subdivision built on it, so there's you know, nothing to see. But Polycarp's was the pastor of the Smyrna church, sometimes called bishop, he lived uh, <clears throat> approximately from uh, 69 A.D. to 155 A.D. So he was 85, 86 when he died. Now that's like being 120 today. And that's a, that's, a, that's a, uh, at that time. That's he's a very very old man. But his greatest contribution to Christianity uh, today that we have may be his martyr death. His martyrdom stands as one of the most well-documented events of, it, of antiquity. 
the emperors of Rome had unleashed bitter attacks against Christians during this period. Uh, members of the early church recorded a lot of these persecutions and deaths. So we have a whole bunch of, of uh, historical testimony for this. Uh, Polycarp was arrested on the charge that uh, he was a Christian, of course, uh, and they were persecuting Christians. Why were they persecuting Christians? Because Christians would not worship the emperor. These other pagans, you know, if you were a worshiper of Diana and they said, well, the emperor is a god, worship him, they'd say, sure. As we talked about last week, we'll just put him in our pantheon of gods here. Bring him in. The more the merrier. The more gods we have, the better, right? Well, Christians didn't say that. So amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on Polycarp, a very gentle old man, and urged him to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. He said, if you just, all you have to do, Polycarp, is just say, you don't even have to believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm interpolating here, but I think probably that's what happened. Look, Polycarp, you don't, you don't have to believe it. You think I believe it? <laughs> just say it. Just satisfy the people here. Just say, Caesar is Lord. You can say Jesus is Lord too. We don't mind that. Just say, Caesar is Lord, and offer this little pinch of incense uh, to, to Caesar's statue. Otherwise, i got to torture you horribly and, and kill you. Now, how many of us would say, well, Lord, you know I don't really believe it, but, you know. What did Polycarp say? He said this, and again, it's very well attested. Quote, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So steadfast in a stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs. And... Historically, they say, a lot of them say that he was tied to the stake and they put the dry wood down by the stake and they poured oil on it to you know, make it burn. Uh, actually, no, often they'll pour water on it. I mean, they pour water on it to make it burn slower so you'll suffer more. Uh, and as soon as they tried to light it, a big wind came up from the Aegean Sea and snuffed out the, the torch. Three times this happened. They couldn't light it. And uh, finally someone stabbed him to death. A much more merciful death than being burned alive. Uh, I'm quoting here from a a writing about Polycarp, and I'll finish with this. Polycarp's martyrdom is historical reality. He died for one reason, his unyielding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Polycarp's well-recorded death is only one of many lives that were given to reveal and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. In the light of the cruel and torturous deaths of the first and second generation of Christians, all theories that Christianity is a fabricated myth created for the personal gain of its followers must be rejected. Even today, many will die for a belief, but none will die for a lie. So if if all these people who lived at the time of Christ and shortly thereafter knew it was a lie, would they have died for it, to uphold it? God allows the deaths of his saints not because he is 
a helpless or indifferent Lord, but because their deaths are powerful declarations of the free gift of life that is offered to us through the person of Jesus Christ. If you have any doubts about the truth of Christ as revealed in the Bible, re-examine the biblical texts in light of the willful deaths of nearly all of its writers, men who are eyewitnesses to Christ's life and ministry. Polycarp, like many other Christians to this day, was only able to die for Christ because he lived for Christ. His life was radically transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. The desires, the worries, the pains and fears of this world no longer bound him. Polycarp's life and death provides an inspirational example for all Christians. He gave his earthly life for Christ, and in the midst of his sacrifice, he gained eternal life. Remember what the Lord says in Revelation 26. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. Let's go to him in prayer.